This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. So, Suzanne, James, welcome to IEEE Software and SE Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And uh, how about, first of all, introducing yourselves to the listeners? Well, my name's Suzanne Robertson, and I'm a principal of the Atlantic Systems Guild. It's a an organisation that's been in existence for how long, James? 27 years, I think, now. And there are six of us in it. And, and one of my partners, in fact, is James, who's sitting next to me. Um, as you've no doubt gathered, I'm also a principal of the Atlantic Systems Guild, hope we can portray some of that as we go through the, the interview. Excellent. Well, what we want to talk today is uh, looking at the intersection between Agile, which mm -hmm. has been around now for well over a decade, and its intersection with requirements. So I thought I'd start asking about when in your requirements work both of you became familiar or aware of Agile projects and its potential impact on requirements work. It was about, actually about 10 years ago, wasn't it when Kent Beck wrote the book about extreme programming? I think it was a little earlier than that, but mm. um, at least I think Kent Beck wrote the book a little earlier than that, but without <laughs> checking, let's say, 10 years. Okay, well, I think probably it, it came into the mainstream. You know, people, he wrote very well, he had some very good ideas, and um, it captured a lot of people's attention. And they said, oh, great, this means that we can just work in a small group and uh, we can just build things. And actually, one of the big mistakes, I think, that people made, not that Beck really intended them to do this, but one of the big mistakes that people made was to say, oh, well, if we work closely with another person, we don't really need to do any requirements work because we, we're there and we can build software. It's very software-focused. Um, and I, those are my earliest memories. What about you? Remember that? I think my earliest memories are uh, well, reading extreme programming, but also the—I uh, don't want to use the word hysteria—but the uh, extreme zealotry that surrounded the introduction of agile techniques. This has been very much a facet of uh, software engineering. That as soon as some new paradigm comes along. Uh, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people leap onto the bandwagon and throw everything away. We don't do what scientists do, which is stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, as an industry, we tend to throw everything away and start again. And this happens, uh, Suzanne and I have seen it happen four or five times in our working lifetime. The problem with Agile and I'm talking here about big A Agile, following a method, whether it's XP or Scrum or Crystal or any one of the other flavours of it, is that the baby got thrown out with the bathwater. The problem was seen as uh, requirements were all wrong, that 
we had to have this giant requirements document that had to be written and complete and then thrown over the transom to the development team. And this was taking a long time for anything to happen. And requirements were pointed out as being the villain of the piece. And so the early Agilists threw out requirements. And I think that was a, a huge mistake. I think we're going to come back to that in a, in a, in a big way later on. Um, so my early, you know, if you're asking my early, you know, responses to Agile was that this is living dangerously because we've gotten rid of something that's very valuable, whereas really uh, there's room for two things here. I think that would be my... But did you find that your clients were expressing that view or were they taking a, a more pragmatic middle road once they started to move to Agile? Well, the clients were either confused and following some kind of a step-by-step -step method or being driven by sometimes by managers who had very little knowledge about what Agile was about. It was just, if you're Agile, that means that you can get things done much more quickly. And consequently, a lot of the teams that I was working with and have been working with just get an awful lot of pressure to be agile and, and really that translates to get this done more quickly. And I think the more intelligent views, more intelligent um, uh, approaches have been when people have said, well, hang on, what does it actually mean? And why is it a good idea? Because it is a good idea. It's a terrific idea. So what, what is it? And you, you then, you, you know, you make the abstraction and you think, well, what it really is, is you want to produce value. But, and you want to produce it because we build systems for people. And systems, I'm talking about them in, in the wide, you know, not just software, but systems. And we want to be able to produce this value and we want to be able to do it quickly and we want to be able to turn on a sixpence when businesses change, and they change more and more often. And I think the people who really understand what Agile is all about understand that. They don't say being Agile means you do Scrum, or being Agile means you don't do requirements, or whatever it is that they, they pick up from the patchwork quilt. So it's understanding the motivation, the rationale for Agile, rather than the, the mechanics of it. Oh, absolutely. I think that's um, you know my point about big A agile and little a agile. Uh, we're very much in favour of little a agile. Uh, I think if you follow too slavishly a method, it can lead you down the wrong road, no matter what the what the method is. Uh, and that was my um, experience with um, clients who were early adopters of it. They felt that if they simply did everything that the method big A agile method said to do that their problems would be over well it turns out that doesn't work it doesn't work that way we can't uh, mm -hmm. uh, we can't work following a slavish method but if we're flexible uh, and not rigid in other words little a agile then it does bring benefits well if, if people understand what little a agile is mm -hmm. then they can pick the techniques that suit particular situations like if they say okay what we're really trying to do is to understand the problem well enough as quickly as we can to decide what to do that will give people the most value sometimes that will mean 
using a particular technique or building a particular type of model. Sometimes it'll mean going through different sorts of cycles, using prototypes, using simulations, all the things that we know about as being useful techniques mm. and approaches. But the problem is that because it was new and because it was presented as a technique or an approach, that's how people got to know about it. So they thought about it as a technique mm. rather than as what's behind it. And that's what we were, were to, uh, that's what we, we were meaning by, by little a, agile. Yes, most, most of my clients now are moving away from big A agile to little a agile when they're uh, getting more value out of uh, better thinking as opposed to... Uh, so how does little a agile manifest itself in projects today? By the adoption of things outside of the uh, original Big A Agile camp, um, for example, something that um, is near and dear to our hearts is systemic thinking. Uh, this is not mentioned in um, uh, most of the textbooks, but it's a very important part of what we do. Um, innovation, for example, is not mentioned anywhere that I've been able to find, but uh, nevertheless is absolutely vital if we're going to be building useful things. Mm. And I think the... Um, I don't know who first said this, but, and to paraphrase it, you can build something any way you want. You can build software any way you want, but if it doesn't do something useful, then by definition it's absolutely useless. And something that uh, in the early adoption of Agile the emphasis was on doing things quickly well I'm also going to say you can build something as quickly as you want to but if it doesn't do what's needed to be done it's absolutely useless and so uh, I think clients or customers and, and software builders are now coming to the realisation that uh, it's better to take a little bit longer to do something and get it right as opposed to build something totally useless on time, on, on budget. Yeah, but I think another thing that you see when people are really coming to grips with, with Little A Agile is that they're not driven by any rigid process, not at all. What they're looking for is to come to grips with a problem as quickly as they can so that they can make some decisions about which bits to do what with, which bits to go further with. Mm -hmm. And they might, it might be a team who work in a particular way that they like, or they might be experimenting with some, something else. Um, but it's, it's not driven by any process or you know, any, any rigid process. I think one of the, you often hear about Agile is that either the stakeholders really can't express their requirements or by the time they've been able to express them, the requirements have changed. We're living in a, such a dynamic world that it's almost pointless to document the requirements in any way that we might consider traditional. What's your view on that? I think requirements change much more slowly than people say they do. The problem is that the requirements are never gathered correctly in the first instance and so when they're presented back to the uh, users the users are saying no that's not what we meant and that's taken to be a changing requirement well it's not a changing requirement the basic business need is still there it just hasn't been expressed properly one of the 
things that I noticed about uh, early big A agile adoption was the emphasis was on building something. Let's go and build some software. And even this macho stuff about having iteration times timed in hours, if not minutes, in order to keep on producing software, keep on producing stuff, keep on producing stuff. This is producing a, a solution, okay? but it's not necessarily a solution to the right problem. Uh, just because we deliver up a piece of software does not mean you're delivering value. And this almost chanting of a mantra that went on about constant delivery of customer value, software is not necessarily valuable. If it doesn't do what's needed, then it's useless. It is not valuable at all. And so um, I'm seeing more and more now the stepping back from that uh, constant delivery of software into uh, getting a better understanding of what the real problem is. And uh, I think that's uh, extremely healthy. Well, also, the other thing that you you mentioned the D word, documentation. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that as well. I think that people think about... If you do requirements, it means you've got to produce a lot of formally written documentation in large documents, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But it's not that at all. What it is is you want to leave a trail. And if you're working in a co-located environment, there's nothing to stop you leaving your trail on the walls and on mm. flip charts. Mm. We've, got, we've got video cameras. We've got, um, we, we, we've, we've got cameras all over the place. Everybody's got them. We've got all sorts of technology that we can use to free us from having to sit down and say, well, now it's time to do the documentation. I mean, you should only do a translation into another form if you need to do that translation in order for whoever it is you're trying to communicate with to understand it. So if you're outsourcing or something like that, you probably need to spend more of your budget on translation. But you shouldn't do it if you don't need to. So the reported demise of more traditional requirements techniques is premature? Well, I don't know, because I'm wondering what you mean by more traditional requirements techniques. Documenting requirements in a way that makes them measurable, that you have got a a specification that can be analysed for various properties, completeness and correctness. But I think, you see, that you can do that in a co-located team Mm. with white walls. I mean, I know that's extreme, but you can do it. The key thing and this is a big key, is to tell the difference between the form and the content. And the content is what you're trying to communicate. Now, if you've got a team, for example, and they are talking to each other about requirements, let's say, and they say, well, we've got 125 requirements. If they haven't got a shared mental model of what a requirement is, they're just going to lose the meaning. So you've got to have some kind of shared mental model, and it doesn't have to be imposed by anybody else as long as that team understands that. If you've got that, then you can trace the requirements. You can make them measurable. Mm -hmm. You can say whether whether you've got this bit of a requirement, whether you've got Mm -hmm. a rationale, whether you haven't. It it just might be in a different form. Mm. So Agile brings us new forms of requirement. The content remains, but the form changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that requirements now, we're accepting that um, some requirements can be verbally communicated. 
that they can be sketched and scribbled on the back of story cards and so forth. There's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, I think it comes back partly to what are you calling a requirement and when you say traditional requirements, uh, if you think about traditional requirements as being the business analyst goes, talks to the customers, writes down whatever they say, translates that into some form to give the developers, yeah, that's been gone for quite some time. If you talk about requirements in terms of, let me call this little r requirements, in terms of actually finding out what the real problem is mm. and having some way of communicating that, and it doesn't matter whether it's written or not, uh, then that's the way we see requirements going today. There are some needs for, you mentioned documentation a moment ago, there, there is a need for documentation still. What we have learned from uh, the agile methods that documenting what a piece of software does is completely useless because the code is the best documenter of functionality. Mm. However, it's not important to document that simply because we can read the code to find out what it's doing. Documenting why something exists is very important. Because in five years' time, when this software still lives, and let's face it, software is living longer and longer and longer, uh, I sometimes do a brief survey in my uh, requirements courses and find that there is software belonging to organizations represented in the room that is older than the students represented in the room. <laughs> uh, so knowing why something exists is important. Mm -hmm. So that kind of documentation uh, has not gone away. Uh, or at least the companies that were developing software without keeping that kind of documentation are realising they do need it, after all. Mm. The rationale behind something, which is why we have it on our snow cards to always document the reason behind something. Mm. Uh, and I think it comes back to when you talk about requirements, or we were talking earlier about requirements changing, if you do discover the rationale for a requirement or even the rationale for a use case or the rationale for a whole piece of work, you find that that concentrates everybody's mind on exactly what the problem is. And you find the problem doesn't change, but proposed solutions to that problem do change. And so um, rather than demise, I'm going to say no, uh, requirements work is morphing into something different with an emphasis mm -hmm. on rationale, reasoning behind things with an emphasis on discovering the real work as opposed to the emphasis being on traditionally writing the, uh, the large The large, large document, document yeah. Mind you, uh, having said all that, there is still a need for the large document if you're outsourcing and let's face it, most organisations today are outsourcing. Mm -hmm. You need to write the complete specification because when you send that off to India or Russia or Indonesia or wherever you're sending it to, they do need a complete specification. Very few outsourcers are going to work iteratively with you. I can see how that can work for functionality, functional requirements. Mm -hmm. What about quality requirements, usability, reliability? I've seen them scribbled on the backs of user story cards and so on. Do you think those have to be documented in different ways in Agile? Uh, I do, yes. Because the qualitative requirements, what we call the non-functional requirements, quite often exist across several 
business events, use cases, across a number of different uh, transactions, whatever you want, partitioning you want to use. So attaching them to one story card is possibly not the best thing to do, simply because if there's another similar story, they may not pick up the same non-functional requirement. So it's almost as if the qualitative requirements have to be separately documented because they are an overarching quality of the whole development effort as opposed to one particular part Yes, but they also need to be connected to the relevant bits of functionality and they also need to be connected to the people who really understand that particular type of non-functional requirement. So it's like now you've got the thread that goes from the functionality to the non-functional requirements to the particular stakeholders who are the experts. And we're seeing this more and more, that because our systems can do many more things and can support many more non-functional requirements, we're seeing more and more like internal consulting stakeholders, people who are usability experts, who just focus on those on that type of requirement and they're experts in them and if there is some kind of formal way of um, writing those things down or, or making them available to people anyway that means that you then start to open the door to reuse to really to open the door to reuse because you don't have to go and discover those usability requirements and write their measurements down every single time but that doesn't happen unless you've actually built up that sociology mm. for the, in the organisation. Okay. So, taking Agile with a small A, how do you think your consulting and requirements practices have changed over the last decade? How have you modified Valere or changed what you teach or train people? Well, the, now, because people are becoming more aware of a wider picture, not enough, but they, they are becoming, they're starting to realize that we have to be systems thinkers. Because of that, we can actually get them to start thinking about the requirements at really at the beginning of doing a piece of work. And I really mean at the beginning, before you actually start to say, okay, let's go and find out all the atomic requirements. Why not identify just, just that really simple model that, we, that we've used, the scope, the stakeholders and the goals, if you can make that visible as the highest level requirements, but you're actually making them measurable, and at that point, identify the pieces well enough to start prioritizing. And this is where the, the A, the, the, the little A comes in. Because the earlier you can start prioritizing the pieces... Mm. The, the more agile you're able to be because you can say, oh, well, look, you know, we've done this, this quick analysis. We can identify the pieces and we've got 50 pieces and we're going to go through a quick prioritization. Whereabouts is the major value? Where are the difficulties? You know, risks, costs. And, but you can do this quite quickly. So would this be on sketched requirements, requirements that are not perfectly formed as we well, expect them to be in traditional It's connected ways. back to the, um, the functional side of it's connected back to the scope. The non-functional side is connected back to the stakeholders. So even though you don't know everything downwards in the detail, you do know what you're talking about 
at the high level. In other words, high level doesn't mean I don't really know what I'm talking about and maybe I'll find out. High level means we understand this, we understand what we think it is now so that we'll know if it changes. Mm, And and that means you can then, you can be very agile. You can Mm. say, okay, we're going to work on this piece and we're Mm. going to deliver something or we're going to work on this piece because we think it's the riskiest thing and if we can't do this, we we may Mm. as well stop doing the project. It's those things that, that people can be, that can use to be much more agile. I think uh, the changes I've seen is that the big A agile folks are coming much more around to looking very much at the problem space. And this is where, uh, if you want to talk about traditional requirements and traditional agile come together, it's an investigation of the problem space to find out what is it we're really trying to do here? And what we're trying to do is not to build a piece of software. What we're trying to do is improve a business. And there's a subtle, very important, and very important difference between the, between the two of them. Uh, the other one is, as Suzanne mentioned, prioritization of looking at the problem space, cutting it up any way you like, but carving it up into pieces and then prioritizing the pieces because a lot of what we do is not important or a lot of what has been done is not important we built software to carry out functionality that's only used once every five years or isn't that important doesn't happen very often adds very little value to the owner of the uh, software and so prioritization mm-hmm. i think is causing people to think about much more closely about what they're doing and not develop as much software mm-hmm. Uh, but only develop for the the important uh, the important things. You know, mm-hmm. how little can we actually get away with here? That's interesting. It's very important. You've mentioned systemic thinking. Mm-hmm. To me, systemic thinking involves some kind of modelling or walking through yeah. something. But it involves artifacts and these sorts of models and artifacts aren't typically things you associate with big A agile. They, they tend to eschew that kind of modelling and they see it as documentation. Do you use those sorts of techniques at all in your approaches? Oh, absolutely. Very much. Absolutely. Um, systemic thinking is, is hugely important uh, because uh, it doesn't matter what your method is, uh, saying you can't build a diagram is rubbish simply because uh, systemic thinking is difficult enough if you're trying to do it all inside your head or on the back of a card, it's not going to work. Okay? Typically, you do need some kind of model just to see the effect of what you're doing. And building a piece of software... So let me just back up a, a moment here. I was talking just a little while ago about the problem space, investigating the problem space. This is something we're seeing more and more of people thinking about the work area that they're trying to improve and not just the software. Okay. The early big A agile went straight into a piece of software and had no idea really whether it would solve the right problem because they're just looking at this very narrow focus. Well, the focus is broadening. We're looking at a piece of work, but then systemic thinking says, you've got to look at that piece of work. If we change that piece of work, what happens to the rest of the organization that it's going into? If it's a simple, simplistic a uh, piece of software like a game, for example, you don't care about what happens around that because uh, the person is going to buy the game or not. What else they do in their life you're not concerned with. If you go and put in a new inventory control system into a car manufacturer, you're con- very concerned about what effect that has on 
manufacturing, on finance, on personnel, on everything else. And if we don't think about all these other things, then uh, we've got the potential for catastrophe. But that points to something that I've seen people are more and more ready now to go back to things that have proved to be useful in the past and connect them to this idea of being iterative, being agile, being being um, able to look at things in hierarchies just as you know, good systems thinkers can do. So, for example, people are now saying, well, process models work in certain cases, data models work, state models work, um, systems flow, dynamics models work, but they're also starting to understand how you can connect those so that you're being consistent and you can you can choose which ones to use in what situations but you can connect them into the overall picture of the project that you're doing and that that harks back to something I said earlier where people can choose the techniques the procedures the visualizations that are most appropriate to to what they're doing. But it does rely on a really important thing about a systems thinking skill, which is, I mentioned earlier, being able to distinguish between what is there because of a form and what's there because of a content. Not Mm. the form's bad, but just to be able to understand which is which. Mm. So do you see your role in part nowadays as helping a project choose the right techniques and tools to use in a a big pick and mix agile shop there's a lot of choice out there you you may be overwhelmed by the choice is that a role that you see for yourself? Oh, we do we, we we do that quite a bit with people and you know help that obviously you've got to learn a little bit about that you know that first high level analysis and mm. then from there because we've seen so many different approaches used we can mm. say to people oh, why don't you start with I don't know a data model for example mm. because this is a very data heavy problem and you're going to get much more insight more quickly if you start with data well these people might never have have done that before because they were used to starting with worrying about processes or functions or whatever they were used to starting so it's trying to help people to free themselves from this is the way we always do it mm. But also freeing teams from believing that the model or the technique is the purpose of it. The purpose is to do some work, to improve the owner's business in some way. Um, Getting into wars about techniques or diagrams and so forth, a lot of what I find myself doing is is saying to people, you can build a model of data any way you like, and if three different people are using three notations, that's fine, because essentially they're all talking about the same thing. And there's no uh, one model that's going to be notably superior to, to another. Um, in fact, you can actually do it in a tabular form if you want to. It, it doesn't really matter. But getting people to realise that is hard if they haven't had a lot of experience because it does rely on um, on having done a fair amount of project work so that you can understand these different abstractions. Um, we, we've been focusing a lot on helping people to become better abstractors um, because 
I think everybody can be better at abstraction. It's just that quite often you're not taught that way. Mm. You're taught, you know, a particular way to do it rather than what's what's behind it. And even if you were taught, you need a little bit more experience before you can say, "Oh, this is really the same as this. Oh, this is this will mm. work better now." Mm. So uh, um, we've been developing some models. I mean, our brown cow model is is very useful as a way of helping people to see you can you can make you know, you know there are four different viewpoints that you can take of anything that are useful useful and it, it, traditionally in business analysis they said as is and to be well that's not really enough you need the as is and how it's done and the to be and how it'll be but you also need what's behind it and that's really looking at the the purpose and the essence and all okay. of that so it's models and things like that that we've helped people to use that as a starting point to help them to be more agile. Because mm-hmm. if you know that you can take four different useful viewpoints, you can take lots more, but four mm-hmm. useful ones, then it doesn't matter where you start. Mm-hmm. And that's what, we, that's what makes people agile. Well, so abstraction is one of those incredibly useful abilities to be able to see something mm. independently of its implementation. In other words, the underlying reason behind it, we often refer to this as the essence of the problem. Mm. Uh, and once you can see the essence, uh, see the reason behind something, uh, it does help enormously to come up with better implementations. Uh, my earlier criticism of big A agile rushing into an implementation was that they were not looking at the underlying problem. In other words, we're not taking any abstractions at all uh, and simply producing piece of software uh, to complain about changing requirements is by not looking at the abstraction, you build a piece of software, it's probably not going to meet the real need. And so when a change is asked for that piece of software, that's taken to be a change in requirement. Well, it's not at all. The original requirement is the same. And if people take a little bit of time to abstract away from implementations, then uh, uh, you can get to see the real, the real mm. problem. And I think that helps enormously. But you see, if, you, in, if you're really agile, um, supposing that you're trying to understand a requirement and you, you're having trouble and people are having trouble telling you or you you just don't get it then it's an intelligent thing to do to build some kind of simulation you know to build a prototype to use Mm. that as a way of trying to figure out what is it you're really trying to do and that's really if you can do that sort of thing then you're really being agile are you beginning to see clients build solution abstractions modeling architectures now because that was something that seemed to disappear in the big A agile in the early days, moving straight from user stories to code. Where was the architecture? Is that reappearing in projects? It's it's very, very slowly. For a reason I cannot explain, architecture is unpopular. Mm. It's one of those uh, necessary things that nobody wants to talk about. Uh, And so... Architecture, yes, it is reappearing and people are understanding the need for it and so on. But uh, again, architecture is not doing itself any favour with things like TOGAF 9 and uh, only five people on the planet can understand it properly. So it, it's, 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 I'm exaggerating here, I hasten to add, but uh, wrapping it up in this arcane kind of presentation is not doing it any favour. So uh, for that reason, it's, it's unpopular. 
Okay. Let's look at innovation. You mentioned that as one of the, the drivers, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, for, for projects nowadays and why we're developing software. How do you think innovation sits with Agile? I could see how the proponents of Agile could argue it's responsive and dynamic. What are your experiences? Well, we were actually arguing about this earlier on today. I'll present my version, which um, is no doubt the correct version of this. And then I'll argue with you. The most valuable innovations come early in the project, and the most valuable innovations of those are the ones that affect the problem space as a whole. Now, I'll hasten to add here, innovation is not coming up with some new technological gizmo with a, uh, a touch-sensitive glass screen or a, an, a new iPad or anything else like that. Innovation is fresh thinking, thinking differently about the problem area. And the most valuable innovations are the ones where the whole problem is changed because of some innovative, fresh thinking. Um, one example that springs to mind simply because I'm doing it at the moment is uh, First Direct Bank here in the UK. Uh, First Direct, brand new bank, or was a brand new bank about five years ago. They started by saying, let's look at the whole problem of banking and what is it that people like and what is it people don't like. So rather than coming at it from a traditional banking perspective, they said, uh, we want to look at banking from the point of view of a customer, okay, which is really a, quite an innovation when you think about it, because most banks look at the banking from the point of view of the bank. And First Direct came up with a completely branch-free, paper-free way of banking. Uh, it's all done on the internet or over the telephone. And importantly, in order to make this work, because anybody can implement that, in order to make this work, their fresh thinking or innovative thinking was about the people they hired for the bank. And they found them all in the service industry. If you'd worked in traditional banking, you're not able to work for First Direct. You had to come from an airline or a hotel or something to do with customer service. And that's what they were selling. They said banking is not about money, it's about a customer service. And when you think about it, that's perfectly correct. But the contretemps we had earlier on was um, you said, ah, yes, well, you can't... Um, being agile doesn't mean you're going to be innovative. Well, I maintain that if you are little a agile you are developing and applying skills that make it possible for you to say, okay, this is where we are now, so that other people, quickly, quickly is the, is the key word here, so that other people can understand what you're talking about. And then, if you're really agile, you say, we're not going any further, we're going to question all these things. We're going to question who's here. Ah, oh, yes, but couldn't it be this? Um, who are we going to hire to do this? Why are we really doing it in the first place? So now... It, you've got to have some kind of starting point because if people just brainstorm like mad, what ends up is they they have lots of ideas that float around and 
that's that. But if you're really agile, you can get a starting point quickly, something that you can build on, disagree with, replace. And that's why I maintain that um, little a, agile, makes you, if you really, really have got it, it will make you more innovative. Well, if you think about big A, agile, and uh, you know, a time-boxed sprint, uh, one iteration, uh, it doesn't really leave you time for innovation because you've got to, you've committed to building a piece of software by a given date, that's what you've got to do. Any? That was the core of our of, of our disagreement because you were talking about big A is not innovative and I was talking about little A is innovative but we were just saying agile. Consequently, we had to talk it through. Yeah. Well, let me try and mediate the domestic dispute in front of me for the listeners in case they're worried about the consequences of this interview <laughs> on your harmony. Um, I think this time boxing is an interesting issue, certainly know from looking at creativity and innovation the, the process of incubation mulling over ideas thinking things through is possible and that doesn't often fit well with the need to be doing something and be seen to do something well innovation is not a rigid process uh, it's one of those bizarre things that we don't know how long it takes to do it uh, we don't know how long ideas sit around before they come to fruition um, the iPad, in one of the most successful consumer devices in recent history, uh, took quite a few years uh, because it was kicked around, it changed, it, it morphed from one thing to the other. Uh, some of the ideas from the iPad were put into the iPhone that was developed first and then later the uh, iPad itself came along. Uh, these things can't be timed. Okay? Now, in terms of value... The iPad is staggeringly valuable to Apple. Okay. Uh, it's also, incidentally, something that nobody knew they wanted. And this is part of just sort of take a little diversion here to, uh, uh, let me say, big R requirements. People don't know what they want. Uh, nobody listening to this, I'm willing to bet, nobody listening to this uh, broadcast knew they wanted an iPad before they saw one. They'd been asked before they knew of its existence, do you need a tablet-sized device to carry around and manipulate purely with your fingers, no keyboard? The answer would have been no. But you're talking about an invention. Well, that's an invention, As opposed yes, to an innovation. I'm using it as an illustration of we don't know what we want. And so relying upon... Um, traditional requirements gathering techniques of sitting down and saying to the customers, sitting down and saying to users, what do you want? It doesn't work. And similarly, in Big A Agile, the role of, of the product owner doesn't work because one person from the business cannot possibly know what is needed. He or she may know vaguely what they think might be a solution, but uh, it's, it's, it's proven to be uh, flawed uh, most clients are moving away from having a single product owner simply because this we don't know what we want is uh, is coming true. Um, making use of looking at the larger larger mm. picture within the within the problem. Are you aware of any examples of agile projects that have led to innovations within that business or more widely? That have led to innovations. Yes, uh, an agile project that's produced an innovative outcome. It's such an obvious question, I felt I should ask it. 
I think the silence coming from the side of the table says no, we haven't. Well, I think uh, we would invite listeners to, to email or, uh, or, or, or social media their comments in on that one. By all means, and I know that... Uh, yeah, in the small you can see it, but I, I, can't, I can't isolate any big thing. No, in the small where, uh, where someone says, oh, could you really do that? I mean, it's not considered to be an innovation... But it is an innovation because it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Mm. Something even more convenient, something that makes it possible for somebody to do more work. I think the problem with innovation is we always expect it to be a bolt from from the blue or from heaven or wherever bolts come from. You saying bolts? You know. Jamaica. <laughs> I think is where they come from. Okay, so let's move on, looking more broadly now. Uh, there's been a lot of association with Big A Agile around, certainly, use of some tools and techniques, mm-hmm. Kanban, user story cards, and yeah. so on. But if you look more widely in software engineering, you're seeing a focus on governance rather than management, focus on the softer people skills mm-hmm. that are important, a focus on politics as well nowadays, understanding the role of politics in software engineering. Do you think these are important in Agile projects? I think they're important in all projects. Um, I'm not quite sure what you're meaning by politics. Do you mean government politics or internal office politics? I was thinking more politics. internal office politics. The, the, the role of politics in the target domain, if you're seeking to change a business, there is inevitably some power relationship which will be, which will enact, be enacted as a political action. Yes, I think this is leading business analysts in particular to be better politicians because the uh, having something accepted is the most difficult thing it's not hard to come up with innovations it's selling the innovation within the organization and having people accept it is is uh, by far the most difficult part of it um, but, but when I, I, I'm just thinking about some of my clients where they have said okay we want to be agile and they're really trying to be small a agile they're really really making an effort problem is that sometimes the organizations are structured in silos but the business analysts have got to work across those silos and in order to do that they've got to be able to negotiate because the different people in different silos have got very very different purposes so once again, the business analysts have really got to to get better and better at the psychology and the and the politics and the and all these things that naive business analysts don't realise because they haven't been trained to do that. They they think that you know writing requirements down and building models and being being big A agile is what you should be doing, and it's a very different different um, skill. Well, the most important business analyst skills are not taught unfortunately politics are very important uh, the case comes to mind that the people first section of the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea a uh, very innovative approach to presenting mm. what is available to people um, and it's, it's worthwhile uh, looking at this unfortunately the link to people first is right at the bottom of the Royal Borough's site and it's hard to see without scrolling uh, but if you go there, you see just what a fabulous piece of work it is. 
um, very innovative, very non-traditional local government. Um, but but, but uh, they had to fight. But the, 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 the guys who made it happen had to really, well, when I say fight, they had to convince people across different it, parts of the organisation that it was okay to be as different as they have been mm-hmm. in their interface. And you can, you can call that politics, you can call it selling, you can call mm-hmm. it diplomacy, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That was what was required. And mm-hmm. it's very necessary. Yeah. And do you think the, the, the reliance of Agile on communication and collaboration more than writing things down has increased the importance of those softer skills that the analyst needs? I think it's increased people's um, awareness that they're necessary. I think they've always been very, very uh, important, but people haven't really been well being prepared to admit it or, or been aware of it. Mm. I, think, I think that this does make people much more aware of the need for it. Well, it, it brings it out in the open, mm. Mm. which is important because mm. before the business analyst was able to hide in a cubicle and write things down, and if they weren't exact, then he or she could always point at other people. Well, now uh, with communication, with verbal communication being so important, uh, it's very hard to hide if you're having an open discussion. And I think that's a you know, really good thing to mm. come out of uh, uh, one of the pretty good things to come out of uh, Agile methods is this emphasis on, on Well, it means that um, education programs for business analysts are more and more aware that we've got to have not just the technical side. And you said this years ago, the, the socio-technical mm. view, mm. And, and that we have to educate business analysts in the socio as well as the mm. technical. Does this mean you're changing your training of analysts to give them more thinking-on-the-feet skills? It seems to me there there is more immediate well, oh, on your feet thinking. Yes, I mean in, in my business analysis course, uh, I actually teach presentation skills because part of the politics, diplomacy, selling, whatever you want to call it, is presenting ideas to people, and people are an audience is much more likely to buy into an idea if it is being competently presented. Uh, if your presenter is standing there shuffling, mumbling and doing a, an appalling job, then the idea is thrown out along with the, mm. with the presenter. So all of these skills of listening, of talking, of presenting, uh, I even try and convince people that drawing is an important skill, that if you can draw a little bit better, it's going to help you to get your ideas across. Mm. Uh, this is a very, very hard sell. I no, no, because Dan Rome, for example, on he, he, on his website, he focuses very much on drawing, and he's he's really convinced a lot of people that you can actually learn to draw quite well, even though you might not have an innate talent for it. I've oh, done some of his lessons, and they're really good. In, anybody can draw. It's just a matter of uh, them believing they can draw in order to do it. And it doesn't have to be great art, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, being the great, uh, yeah. being another David Hockney or anything, it's just getting just an idea. Just giving people the confidence, I think, but, that they can they can do things. It's like that, um, what's that wonderful Japanese, um, Kachuka? Pechakuka. Pechakuka, where you get somebody to make a presentation that's really constrained by time. 20 and slides, each slide lasting 20 seconds, and they're automatically advanced. So you've got three minutes and 40 seconds to get whatever it is across. Uh, so you can't be 
mumbling about bullet points and so forth. It's going to be a short, sharp presentation. And it really it's, is it's, something that people can do that, and they don't yeah, think they can. It's, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful That's discipline. a truly an agile thought. But also just an ultimate time boxing. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to, uh, to drawing um, or sketching or if I can lead into visualising, yeah. because if you can present a diagram to somebody that visualises your idea, it's much easier for the other person to understand it and they're much more likely to, to accept it. So we're moving from user stories to user storyboards? Uh, if you like, yes. That's any visual graphic presentation is, uh, I think, is, is is important. I think user stories work very well. Also, if they're if they're intelligently used, like everything, you know, it's a really good idea, providing you can connect it to everything else that's going on. Mm. Yeah. But the storyboard itself, uh, if we go back to systemic thinking, you get a much better, broader view of what's happening if you've got the storyboard as opposed to the. Uh, uh, the story card, you're much more likely to see the ramifications mm. of anything you're doing. Well, it's more so dimensions, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. more dimensions and, and uh, okay. a better visualisation of it. So looking to the future, what do you see as the, the, the big challenges for Agile and requirements over the next few years? Are there new trends that are going to pose challenges? Are we not there yet and we still need to improve on what we're doing in big A or little A Agile? I think my biggest bugbear, and you've probably picked this up already, is, is um, business analysts have to become better at systems thinking so that they are stronger and able to take new ideas and not be driven by them. Mm. And, uh, and, and systems thinking has been around for a hell of a long time. Mm. It's just that we haven't really join these things together and I think we're starting to do it now I, I, I look for example Emma Langman gave a talk at the BA conference last year she she gave that one of the keynotes and she's focused on systems thinking mm. and it, she really turned a lot of people's lights on and, and, and John um, what's his name um, John Seddon gave another talk about it and, mm. and it's they came from that discipline but the business analyst said oh yes this is definitely a lot to do with what we do and it would really help us if we could do it better. So. Does it reside in sprint zero or sprint minus one or does the systemic thinking happen through the sprint cycles? All the way through. All the way through. Yeah. Although I'm going to say I think the most valuable systemic thinking happens at sprint minus one or minus two That's or true. somewhere uh, back there because uh, the most valuable systemic thinking, the most valuable innovation, it all comes before you start to build mm. software. We need a marathon before all the sprints. Absolutely. Post-Olympic <laughs> theme here <laughs> during this interview. Uh, something I see happening that I think is a very, very healthy thing is that the um, religious aspect of agile is, is fading. Um, and People wanting to be agile, but they're adopting more and more of traditional techniques. Systemic thinking is beginning to come infiltrate in, into agile. Innovation is beginning to come into it and so forth. And so uh, I see this as being very healthy because uh, there are lots of good things in agile, but there are also a lot of good things that are not traditionally part of Agile, or at least not, not part of big A Agile, let's say. So um, the 
wholesale adoption of big A agile techniques is, I see it as being breaking down and people are adopting a much more pragmatic approach to uh, developing a software. So and is that the future? Is that how you see the, the future of agile development in the next five, ten years? Well, I hope so. I mean, I say I hope so because you never know what's going to happen. And we've always had yet another paradigm, you know, the, the Fred Brooks' silver bullet syndrome. I'm hoping, and I, because, and I am an optimist, so I'm hoping that people just start building on what we already know and don't look for another miracle which stops us getting better at what, we, what we're doing. I'm seeing slightly a less emphasis on doing things quickly. Now, this is never going to go away. Um, the biggest problem is that we can measure time. We have calendars, we have clocks, and so that's what we measure. What is harder to measure is effectiveness and how valuable something actually is, how valuable a change is. And it comes back to uh, something we, I think, opened our new edition of our requirements book with. If you're going to build software, it has to be optimally valuable to its owner. And it's this idea of value for the owning organization, which uh, I think is slowly but inevitably becoming part of, of software development. You know, are we really producing something which is not just a quick fix for a current problem, but are we producing something which is genuinely valuable, that's genuinely going to make a difference within the, mm -hmm. in the business? Uh, in order to be valuable, it probably has to be innovative. Uh, it's very hard to think of anything being valuable if it is not an innovation if it is not some significant change to what's there at the moment. So that's that's happening. You know, seeing that happening more and more. Uh, I think mm. seeing more and more a more emphasis placed not on software but on business analysis itself. And I'm just using that as a uh, a word to describe not the role of the business analyst, but uh, the role of actually analysing the business and finding out what the real problem is and what are we going to do to make that business more, more valuable. Yeah, and how to actually make sure that the thread from what we need to do to make it more valuable is, co is coherent to all the people in the chain using whatever form is appropriate to, to do it in that, in that um, environment. So if we take the engineering part of software engineering, it's uh, engineering the business, engineering, the work being done, regardless of what the work is, it can be commercial work, can be scientific, can be mm. academic, can be anything at all, uh, it's engineering the work and the end result is usually a piece of software. But we're thinking more of the software as almost an accidental byproduct of the re-engineering of the, or the engineering of the, of the piece of work. It's not re-engineering, it's engineering. Yeah. Exciting times ahead. Suzanne Robertson. James Robertson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, thank Neil. You that was very interesting. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To support us, you can advertise SE Radio by clicking the Dig, Reddit, Delicious, or Slashdot buttons on the site, or by talking about us on Facebook, Twitter, or your own blog. 
If you have feedback specific to an episode, please use the commenting feature on the site so that other listeners can respond to your comments as well. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks again for your support.